So if you take a look at verse 14 again, you'll see a question that is raised by John the Baptist's disciples. You see the question? Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It would seem that the disciples of John had been infected by what we know as a pharisaical spirit. And how easy it is for each and every one of us to be infected by that exact same spirit. Any one of us at any time can turn into a Pharisee like the people here. If you actually think about it, it's, very, it's a very quick and easy process into becoming a judgmental, condemning, externally focused, obsessed hypocrite. In such a way that we are in line more with the religious leaders that we are introduced to in the Gospels, the religious leaders called the Pharisees, than we are with the wonderful, beautiful, amazing Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And listen, all of us need to know this. All of us, me, you, everyone here, we are all ever in danger, always in danger of slipping into a pharisaical religion. We are all just a hair away from possessing the same spirit that the Pharisees possessed. And it can happen with pretty much anything. And I've watched it play out in other people's lives, and I've had to fight against the temptation in my own life not to be more like the Pharisees than I am the Lord. And perhaps you've become a Pharisee yourself. I've seen it in different times and in different ways in different people, and I've seen it in myself. I've seen it develop as, uh, and it usually begins as we identify and we latch on to something that we really appreciate. It could be some new practice that we found or some new ritual or some new diet or idea or group or commitment. It could be something that we latch onto in our personal lives or with the groups that we uh, align with. It could be something lifestyle-oriented. It could be something ideological. It could be something religious. But whatever it is, the process usually goes like this. We get all excited about this thing all excited about this newfound avenue in life and we talk about it with everyone we know because we want to share this newfound enthusiasm with everyone. We are so eager for everyone to know what it is at this point in our lives that is bringing us so much happiness. And so we crowbar it into every conversation. You ever notice that? If there's something on your mind that is just really, you're really excited about you find a way to put it in every conversation you know when uh, when october comes or september comes october comes and the salmon are running up the rivers guess what finds its way into every conversation i have with every person did you know the salmon are running did you know the salmon are running salmon are running anyone want to go fishing with me salmon are running you know we could be talking about cheese and i start talking about salmon well maybe those two things go together sometimes i don't know but we crowbar this love into every single conversation. But you know what? If it ends there, that's good. If it ends with you just enjoying something and telling everyone about it, there's no harm in that. There's no harm in being excited by a new diet. There's no harm in telling everyone how effective this is or how good you feel by it. There's no harm in saying, you know what? I've taken meat off my plate. There's no harm in saying, I've put more meat on my plate. There's no harm in any of those things. 
There's no harm in telling people about how I'm, my health is amplified by it. There's no harm in saying, you know what, I prefer this Bible translation over this one, and then speaking about it. There's no harm saying, I prefer this music over this music. That's all well and good, and we rejoice with you as you appreciate those things in your own life. The problem comes when our excitement over these things transforms into expectation. When our excitement over these things transforms into expectation. The expectation that others ought to see things the way I see them. That they ought to hop on board the train of excitement with me. And as one gets deeper and deeper into their particular appreciation and others don't get quite as inspired by it as you do or as I do, it's so easy, right, to slip into thinking... They're just not as smart as me. They're not as sophisticated as me or not as committed as me or not as self-controlled as me. I'm not, they're not as caring or compassionate as me. They're not as courageous as I am. And the list could go on and on and on, but we all know that this is a state of the human heart that we can so easily slip into. It's so easy to slip into a people-be-so-dumb type of mentality. Why wouldn't they buy this car that I'm hyped up with? I told them that Volkswagens are the best. Why wouldn't they choose this dietary lifestyle? Why wouldn't they give up meat? Why wouldn't they eat more meat? Why won't people get vaccinated? Why would someone get vaccinated? Why won't more people stand up and protest? Why would people stand up and protest? Why won't more people vote for my political party? Why would anyone vote for that political party? And over time, these along with so many other ideas, so many other practices, so many other beliefs, they start to morph into standards by which we judge and condemn one another. We create a box and we say, everybody who's in this box with me, smart, cool, let's talk, let's hang out. Everyone outside of it, dummy. That's the Pharisee spirit. There's a reason that churches have split over everything from Bible translations to music styles to schooling choices to chairs or pews to dress codes in church and the people on all sides of these issues fight bitterly over them, tooth and nail over them. It's because these things have, for those people, become the standard by which we judge and condemn or accept other people. These external issues become the benchmark by which we judge their religion. And either people agree with us and so prove to be smart and truly correct in their practice of faith, or they disagree with us and prove to be morons that we should separate ourselves from. It's also similar to the disposition and attitude of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And listen, the Pharisees started out well enough. And the, the rabbis and the religious leaders, they started out well enough. Because when Israel returning, returned from exile, got back into the land, they really did want to serve the Lord. They gave up idolatry. No longer in Israel were they bringing statues in and bowing down to them alongside of Yahweh. They turned to the Lord. They repented of their idolatry. 
And they tried to figure out how to live lives of obedience to the Lord. How, they tr- how to figure out how to, live, how to live according to the commands of the Lord. And as they were trying to figure this out, a new class of religious leader rose among the people. The rabbi. The wise and learned voice of authority among the people who tried to help and to teach the people of God the word of God. But over time, as rabbinic Judaism took increasing root among the Israelites, these rabbis started taking the different parts of the, of the Bible and grappling with them. They started de- debating the finer points and details as to how one actually goes about following and obeying God's law. There was a big problem, though, because they focused exclusively, almost exclusively, on just the ri- external rituals of religion in direct contrast to the continued appeal all throughout the Old Testament that we are to love and to serve the Lord with all of our hearts. So, for example, circumcision. Circumcision, while it is an external rite that was ordered by the Lord among the men of Israel, it wasn't meant to just be some external ritual by which you said, I'm in, I'm good. It was meant to signify and inspire something much more important, the circumcision of the heart. That's what we read in Deuteronomy 10. Listen to Deuteronomy 10. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The idea being, serve and obey the Lord your God out of a pure and dedicated heart, a heart that is devoted to Him. See, simply being circumcised as an external ritual affords you nothing. The mere external ritual without any heart is of no benefit to you. And this is a truth that the Apostle Paul made clear in the New Testament when he wrote in Romans chapter 2, no one is a Jew, meaning no one is of the people of God, who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Meaning, God is after obedience to him that is inspired by and inflamed by a heart that is in love with him. Not, he's not simply looking for your mere ex- observance of external rituals and by those obs- external rituals thinking that you have gained his favor while your heart remains unchanged. And you see, this is what Israel had been doing throughout her history. And so in, when the Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah, he speaks uh, to the Israelites to, to show them that if the mere external ritual was enough, if that's all God wanted, if when God instituted the Levitical system and said, here are the sacrifices, you do these, and we're all good, if all he was meaning to say is, once you put that animal, it doesn't matter the state of your heart, once you put that animal on the altar, we're good, and once it's burnt then the Lord would not have spoken these scathing words to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. And in this text, the Lord refers to Israel as Sodom and Gomorrah. So when you hear Sodom and Gomorrah, he's speaking about Israel. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough 
of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to me, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure the iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before, from before my eyes. Do you see it? The Lord here declared his loathing of Israel's practice of the very rituals and rites that he had instituted for them to perform. Why? Because they had only focused on the ritual and performed them without hearts dedicated to and devoted to the Lord. And so these rabbis, while initially hoping to do the right thing, they simply, they erred by simply continuing on with a focus on the externals. They grappled with how to best follow the external rites, but barely, if ever, addressed the, the meaning behind them and the necessity of a heart that is devoted to the Lord in those rituals. And so they focused on how to externally follow the commands of the Lord, but never touched on the heart. And one of those examples that pops up in Scripture over and over and over, one that we need to understand as we navigate Jesus and his interactions with the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Matthew, is the issue of Sabbath. How does an Israelite actually obey the Lord's command about the Sabbath? The, the command comes in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, 8 to 11. Listen to it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is within them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So the rabbis read this, they get together, and they say, well, how do we actually follow that? How does one do no work on the Sabbath? How does one keep the Sabbath holy and rest on the Sabbath? What constitutes work and what constitutes rest? And these are the questions that the rabbis sat and discussed and debated. And even in our day, uh, the, the Jewish community is still debating on, uh, on what these things, what constitutes work on the Sabbath. And I, we even see a, a number of Christian denominations telling us what we can and what we can't do on the Sabbath, right? All of my Dutch reformy types, can you get gas in your car on the Sabbath? No, yeah, see, I got two answers. Yes, no, yes, no. See, there's some debate going on in there, right? The rabbis eventually settled on 39 categories, and those 39 categories have spawned hundreds of subcategories about what is prohibited on the Sabbath. Now, we're going to go through them quickly, but I want you to focus in on which one of these have anything to do with the heart of Sabbath. 
or the heart devoted to following the Lord. And I got these from a conservative Orthodox Jewish synagogue site. So these are the 39 things the rabbis said were prohibited on the Sabbath. And by not doing these things, they thought you were observing the Lord's intention for Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry anything. You're not allowed to carry any unnecessary objects. So the debate now is, does this include your sunglasses? Because if you don't need glasses, to walk with those glasses on your face would mean you're carrying them and therefore violating the Sabbath. You're not allowed to burn anything. You're not allowed to light a fire. You're not allowed to throw something into an already lit fire. You're not allowed to start a car because starting a, a car is the ignition or the burning of uh, the, the gas, and you're not allowed to turn on a stove. You're not allowed to extinguish anything. You're not allowed to put out a fire, lower a flame, turn off the lights in your house, or turn off an electrical appliance. You're not supposed to finish anything. You're not supposed to write anything. All forms of writing, all forms of typing, any rubber stamps, you can't even use rubber stamps. No erasing. All forms of erasing what has been written. Even opening a package. Because if you open a package, you might rip through the letters on that package, therefore you would violate the Sabbath. No cooking. No washing. No sewing. Sewing equal is, includes stapling things or sealing envelopes because you're fastening things together. However, if you fasten things together with a safety pin, that's permitted because it's temporary. No tearing things, meaning no separating what was sewn, no tearing cloths, no separating papers that have been glued or stapled or stuck together. No knotting, meaning no tying of permanent knots. But if you need your shoe tied, you can tie the knot on your shoe because the knot's temporary. But no untying of your permanent knots. But wait a second, if a knot is permanent, how do you untie a permanent knot? I, okay, I don't get it. No shaping, meaning no woodworking or cutting paper. No plowing, meaning anything that improves the ground. No gardening or raking. And all the men are like, we got to get this Sabbath thing going, honey. You know, stop telling me to garden and rake out there. No planting, meaning anything that encourages plants to grow. No watering, no placing flowers in a vase with water. No reaping, meaning no cutting or plucking up of fruits. No harvesting, meaning no gathering of fruits or any other plant life. No threshing. Threshing is the removal of food from its natural container, right? So if you're threshing wheat, you want to get rid of the chaff and actually have the wheat. Um, and that's extrapolated now into no milking cows, no pouring juice, because when you pour juice, you're taking juice from its container and you're putting it into another. So that is a violation of the Sabbath. No winnowing, no selecting. So if you're eating fish on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to select the bones out of the fish while you're eating it. That would be a violation of the Sabbath. You're not allowed to file or sort anything of any kind. No sifting, no grinding. So you can't grind any coffee beans on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to grate cheese. If, you're mud, if you have mud on the bottom of your boots and you walk into the house, you can't take the mud and, and rub it off the, the, uh, the, the boot because that would be grinding. No sharpening pencils. No kneading, no combing, no spinning. No dyeing, meaning you cannot change the color of any object or substance on the uh, Sabbath. So ladies, you cannot put lipstick on during the Sabbath. However, if you are able to find a lipstick that can last 25 hours, you can put it on just before the Sabbath begins and leave it on, but you can't put it on once the Sabbath starts. No stitching, no looming, no weaving, no unraveling, no building, meaning no hammering nails into the wall, no repairs, no pitching of a tent, no opening of an umbrella because modern-day rabbis conclude that opening an umbrella is the same as pitching a tent, which is building. 
No demolishing, no trapping, no shearing, meaning uh, this includes combing your hair because as you comb your hair, you pull hair out of your head with the brush, which is a form of shearing. No slaughtering, so you can't kill anything. No swatting mosquitoes or flies. No blood can be drawn even for a blood test. No skinning, no tanning, no smoothing. Smoothing meaning the polishing of any surface. No rubbing soap to clean your face. No face creams, no shoe shines, any of those types of things. And finally, no marking. Did you hear anything about the heart? Did you hear anything about dedication and devotion to the Lord with all of your heart? And there are still debates even up to this day about these externals and debates in modern Judaism between the more orthodox conservative Jews and the more liberal Jews about how far and how wide these prohibitions stretch. How strict are they? Is turning off your light truly considered extinguishing? Is it really violating the Sabbath to flip off the light? So those are some of the debates that they were having. However, in Jesus' day... These 39 rules or 39 prohibitions, eventually, even though they were extra-biblical and even though they were crafted by rabbis, they eventually, over time, became mandated for anyone who would consider themselves righteous. They were eventually elevated to the level of Scripture itself. And these were, according to the Pharisees, binding and authoritative on on people's lives. As though this list of do's and don'ts which, uh, to me, make the Sabbath less restful, are what please the Lord and gain His affection. And you can see, as you go through the New Testament, how angry the religious leaders got at Jesus when He didn't share their fanatical observance to the tradition of the elders in regards to Sabbath. So if you flip over to Matthew 12, verse 1, for example, Jesus, on the Sabbath, is walking through the grain fields with His disciples. And in twelve one says, His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. And they were, by so doing, they broke the rabbinical rules of selecting and harvesting. And the Pharisees saw the disciples doing that, and they're like, look, 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 look. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Did you notice? They used the word lawful. Because they had put that, these laws on the same level as God's laws. Your disciples are not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath. The only th- laws that these disciples were breaking were the extra-biblical, man-made Pharisees' rules. And you see how highly they had elevated these rules to the point of them being lawful. And right after this, if you go into verse 14... Of chapter 12. Jesus had just healed a man with a withered hand. This is on the same day, right after the, the heads of grain. He healed a man with a withered hand, and I don't know what law he was breaking, maybe the selecting law, maybe the smoothing law, maybe the building law, not sure which one, but because, or specifically because, Jesus didn't share the Pharisees' description or uh, idea of the Sabbath, it says in Matthew twelve fourteen, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And there you have it. That is what elevating man-made external, religi- external rituals to the position of standard by which we judge and condemn one another leads. In this case, it led to the Pharisees conspiring against our Lord as to how they might destroy Him. 
And so as John the Baptist's disciples approach Jesus, they come holding up to him their practice of fasting. And you see that they said, we and the, and the Pharisees fast. So their practice of fasting is very similar to the Pharisees' practice of fasting. And they use this as the example when they come to Jesus to question him, saying, why do you and your disciples not follow the same fasting protocols that we do? Instead of fasting, why do you, Jesus, and your disciples recline at the table, drinking, eating, and feasting with tax collectors and sinners. Why are you doing that? And we are over here fasting. See, the, the disciples of John are concerned by this Jesus. They are concerned about his lack of worry over observing the, the traditions and laws of the rabbis regarding fasting. And Jesus will here take this opportunity to instruct them. Do not get so hung up on the external Pharisee spirit. Do not get so hung up on the Pharisees' practices. Why? Because they are flawed and they are faulty. So when the disciples of John approach Jesus, their teacher, their instructor, John the Baptist, has been in prison for a while. You go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, we read that John has been arrested. And in Luke chapter 3, we read why. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John the Baptist for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this, added this evil thing to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John was put in prison for his clear truth-speaking to Herod about his sinful deeds. This John, who is in prison, had a number of disciples following him. And John called those disciples, he exhorted those disciples to the same strict, severe, self-denying lifestyle that he himself lived. But unlike the Pharisees, John the Baptist loved the Lord. John the Baptist served the Lord out of a heart devoted to the Lord. John chose this life out of a deep love and a, for the Lord and a deep desire to honor and serve him in his role as forerunner to the Messiah, as the one who is tasked with the wonderful blessing of pointing Israel to the Messiah. And he did that in John 1.29, right? When he announced, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John's life... The life to which John called his disciples was one of foregoing the pleasures and the joys of the world. John's disciples didn't have eat delicious food. They didn't drink delicious drink. And while John chose this life and told his disciples to live this life in devotion to the Lord, Jesus ate and drank whenever someone invited him to his house. While John steered clear of even the basic joys of life in this world. You read it in Matthew 3, 4. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a, leather, and a leather belt around his waist. John was not going around wearing nice cotton t-shirts and silk clothing of the upper class. This guy was wearing itchy shirts everywhere he went. And not only that... His food was locusts and wild honey. Now, and this is because he lived out in the wilderness. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Have you ever thought what that means to have a life where your food is locusts and wild honey? 
Instead of John going to people's homes and enjoying their hospitality and having food, sumptuous food, served to him on a plate, John ate whatever he could get his hands on in the wild. You can just imagine it, right? John and his disciples get hungry and they're like, look, there's a locust, look, there's a locust. And they're jumping wherever they can to get the locust for their dinner that night. That's not an easy life. You can imagine John and his disciples suffering numerous angry stings of agitated bees as they knock down hives in an effort to eat honey. This type of life is not the same as the one that Jesus was living. This type of life is not the same as, the some, as having someone put a plate of food before you with the food already cooked and arranged nicely. John's life was not one where he could simply go to the cupboard or open the fridge and yank out some Kraft dinner and some hot dogs, throw the Kraft dinner on the stove, put the hot dogs on the barbecue, and just start chowing down. This is the, when I'm hungry, I get stung by bees life. It's not fun, it's not pleasant, it's difficult, and it's painful. And this is the life that John's, John the Baptist's disciples also lived. It's the type of life that if your teacher is not there consistently with you, pointing you to the reason why we live this life. Because we love the Lord and we are devoted to the Lord. If John is not there consistently leading in that direction, very easily these disciples could turn from devotion to the Lord in love to pride and arrogance over and against those who just don't seem to put in the same level of self-denial as I do. Who just don't follow the rules as rigidly as I do. And it seems like these disciples of John appreciated the commitment of fasting that they saw in the Pharisees because it was a lot like what John had been teaching them. But again, the difference is the Pharisees did it as an external ritual while John did it out of love and devotion to the Lord. And so they weren't as positively inclined to the choices that Jesus made in his ministry and in his mission. And this is a common human fault, right? You can kind of understand where John's disciples are coming from. I mean, think about it. In your life, has anyone ever had to go and help a friend move? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You've had to go help a friend move. Now, you don't have to tell me who it is or anything like that. But how would you feel if you're lugging this guy's or girl's sofa, you're carrying their TVs, you're lifting their boxes, sweat is beating down, and you look at the person whose stuff you're moving, and they're sitting over there on the couch, eating a hot dog, talking to their friends, and you're doing all the work. Would you get upset? Would that, you get a little bit of that internal feeling like, I'm doing all this work, and you're doing nothing. Of course. You actually see that in Scripture. You remember Martha and Mary, right? Martha is running around. She's doing dishes. She's getting food ready, and she's cleaning the house, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what does Martha do? Jesus, do you not understand? I'm doing all this work, and she is just sitting here. You can see, right? There was an immediate, there was a, it was a subtle switch, but it was a switch to a pharisaical spirit. And in the same way that the rabbis wondered about how one follows the Sabbath, this Pharisaic spirit 
Pharisaic spirit also made its way into fasting as they wondered how is one to obey the Lord in the area of fasting. See, we know, based on the word of Christ, that one ought not to fast simply because of some external observance because we want to win the favor of the Lord or we want to put a check mark in our, uh, you know, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. You and I, we're good. But we do these things out of a heart that is devoted and committed to the Lord. And during this day, there's only one mandated fast in all of Scripture. And that was on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, you read, It shall be a statute for you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. Afflicting here means fasting. And so while you read through the Old Testament, you will see localized calls to fasting as a nation for repentance. You will see individuals fasting by themselves as they weep and mourn and they petition the Lord. There you will see different types of fasts, but none of those are mandated. They are fasts that are described in Scripture, but not prescribed. And so the disciples of John come to Jesus, and the intent of their question is clear. You aren't fasting like we do. You aren't living the same type of life, the same type of obedient life that we and the Pharisees do. Why not? Why don't you do things the way that the religious leaders have told you they ought to be done? Why don't you and your disciples follow the practices that have been set out for us by the spiritual authorities and so prove that you are the spiritual leader that John has been so excited about? Now just a step back here. I want to be clear. Striving for holiness and obedience to the Lord out of a love for Him, out of a desire to honor Him and to exalt Him and to live a life pleasing to Him and calling others to do likewise, this is not Pharisaic legalism. It is never inappropriate at any time or in any circumstance to fully and vibrantly advocate for, contend for the strict and exacting observance of and obedience to God's clear, revealed word that's not what is at issue here it's actually a sad state of affairs that we find ourselves in when so many assume that when we call them to obedience out of a love for the lord that that's legalism it's not the problem here is not the calls made to hear and obey god's actual word the problem here was that the pharisees had added all sorts of external rituals and rites all sorts of extra-biblical rules and made those a standard for righteousness before God, a standard by which to judge who's in and who's out, a standard by which to judge serious devotion to God among the people, as though the external and practicing the externals were enough. And Jesus will make this clear as he says, he answers their question in verse 15. Look at that. He says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. So the Pharisees were told, you fast twice a week because that's what good religious folks do. And then they judged every single person who didn't measure up to their standard. And while John the Baptist was imprisoned, it would seem, like we said, that his disciples, without John to lead them, were infected by this leaven of the Pharisees as well. 
And in answering them, Jesus, in essence, tells them, can it really be, can it really be that you're so committed to some external rules set out not by Scripture but by, religious, by a religious system that clouds Scripture? Can it really be that you're so committed to following this system, come what may, that you can't read the times and the seasons? You know, fasting is a practice for the brokenhearted. Fasting is a practice for those who recognize that the life that we're living is not what it's supposed to be. And so they're calling upon the Lord. Fasting is for those who are desperately seeking upon or calling upon God to move and to act and to forgive. Fasting is a time of affliction. Jesus here says, Can you not see that the bridegroom has arrived? We'll talk about what that means in a second, but the language Christ here uses in calling himself the bridegroom is quite intentional as it alludes to the Lord's presence and work among the people of Israel and to the times of Messiah in the Old Testament. You can see it in a few places. For example, Isaiah 54, we read this. For your maker, Israel, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. And in Isaiah 62, we read this, You, Jerusalem, shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land shall be called married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And the word of the Lord to the people of Israel in Hosea God showed in vivid picture how Israel's idolatry can be compared to an unfaithful spouse. And the Lord promised to reestablish faithful relationship between them, and he again described this reconnection with matrimonial language. You see it in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Behold, I, the Lord, will allure her, the Jewish people, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there shall she answer as in the days of her youth, (coughs) as at the time when she came out of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. So when Jesus takes for himself bridegroom imagery here, He is making a very high statement about who he is. It's a very important statement about his identity. He is the bridegroom. He is the one who is referred to in the husband imagery all throughout the Old Testament, all through the prophetic writings. And so Jesus, in answering the disciples of John, is saying to them, 
I am the bridegroom, and if the bridegroom is here, guess what? That means that this is a time for joy. This is a time for feasting. It's a time for celebration. You see, fasting is a sign of grief and mourning, and such a deed is wildly unsuitable for a time of great joy. That's why he says, can the wedding guests mourn? Or can it really be that the wedding guests, or more accurately, depending on your translation, you might see friends of the groom, would the friends of the groom, meaning the disciples, mourn while they are with the groom? See, the friends of the groom are like groomsmen. And what's the job of a groomsman uh, as you're leading up to your wedding ceremony? Their job is to promote the festivities, There's to speak of the happiness and the joy of the times. Can you imagine being a bride or a groom and all of your groomsmen or all of your maids of honor, instead of celebrating with you, leading up to your wedding, sat with you crying? Oh, oh you're getting married. Can you imagine a week of that? It's out of place, isn't it? A wedding is a time for joy, and so the wedding guests, while with the guest of honor, celebrate. And Jesus, applying the title of bridegroom to himself, is saying, I am the Lord. I have come to save you. I am the bridegroom you've been waiting for. I'm calling you to myself. It's time for a celebration. However, he says next, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. See, there will come a time for fasting in the life of the disciples. There will come a time for mourning, for grief, and for sorrow. That time will come when Jesus is, as he says, taken away. And this right here is Christ's first allusion to his upcoming arrest and crucifixion in in the Gospel of Matthew. He will be killed. That's how the bridegroom saves. That's how the bridegroom calls his people to himself. He gives up his own life, bearing in himself the just wrath of God against our sin in our place, on our behalf. And Christ calls out to everyone with ears to hear, everyone who desires liberty, everyone who wants freedom and forgiveness and eternal life, and most importantly, Christ himself. He calls out to all of them to believe in him for the forgiveness of sins, and everyone, every single person who truly believes in him will be saved. They will be forgiven. They will be given the wonderful gift of eternal life with him, which is mine, yours, our greatest joy. And here for the first time, Jesus alludes to that fact that he will be taken away. He doesn't make this crystal clear until Matthew chapter 16 when he begins showing the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and then be killed and on the third day raised. But even then, the wedding guests fast because he is taken away. But Jesus on this same night also promised the disciples that joy would soon follow. Their fasting didn't last long. Because in John 16, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you, say to you, you will weep and lament, but, and the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Because I will be raised from the dead. I will ascend to the right hand of God the Father, and your salvation will be secured. 
The days, those days will come, but for now, as the disciples of John are asking Jesus the question, how can it be that the disciples of Jesus would fast and mourn when the hope of Israel is here among them? What an oxymoron. Jesus is wondering, how can you persist in following this set of extra-biblical rules simply for the sake of following them when it's not fitting to do so? You guys are going to keep fasting because somebody has told you that you should keep fasting when you are now in a time of joy and feasting. It just doesn't make sense. Because now is the time for rejoicing, he said. And he illustrates this with two pictures. One, the first is in verse 16. Look at it. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. And second, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. The idea here being the old and the new are incompatible. Now some teach erroneously that these illustrations refer to the incompatibility of the Old Testament and the New, as if they are somehow not one long story line that is unified. But as we've already noticed, Jesus is clear. Jesus held the Old Testament in high regard, the law and the prophets in the highest regard. Jesus is in no way disregarding or degrading the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God's word. No, Jesus has, as we've been walking through Matthew, been laboring to peel away the layers of man-made extras that have been added to the scriptures and that obscure it. We've looked at this already, right? Back in Matthew 5, when we went through the, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you statements of Jesus. Jesus wasn't somehow saying, well, you know, the Old Testament says this, but let's just scratch that and put something new in its place. That's not what Jesus was doing. He was removing the barriers of false additions. He was removing the Pharisees and the rabbis' misinterpretations of the text and getting back to the pure, unadulterated meaning of the Lord in that text. You see, an eye for an eye wasn't a prescription. It wasn't, look, if someone takes your eye, you run after them until you grab theirs and pull it out of their head. No, it was a prohibition. If someone grabs your eye, the, the worst you can do is take theirs, but the highest calling, the highest calling is to do nothing but forgive. And Jesus does the same with these two illustrations. What's incompatible is not Old and New Testaments or Old and New Covenants. What's incompatible is the external religion and practices of the Pharisees and the rabbis, this Pharisee spirit and the teachings of Christ. Their old, well-worn system is not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus truly shows the meaning and the trajectory of the Old Testament. But trying to combine the external religion of the Pharisees with the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, it just cannot be done. You see, whereas the Pharisees practice hypocrisy calling for people to practice rituals and deeds as a way of winning the Lord's favor, and many times they didn't even practice those deeds. Whereas the Pharisees loved preeminence, and so they practiced their religion in a way that they could be seen and noticed by those around them. And I can just say, I am so glad that these guys aren't here to create Facebook accounts. 
But sadly, there are many who are carrying the torch of the Pharisees in that wasteland. And whereas the Pharisees were partyists, meaning that they had defined lines and practices and beliefs that if people veered from them or if they deviated from them in even the slightest, the Pharisees would cut off all communication. They'd slander, they'd insult those that disagreed with them. There's an example, the man born blind in John chapter 9. Jesus healed him and the Pharisees questioned him. And as the man spoke about what Jesus had done in his life, the Pharisees simply resorted to insults and excommunications when they looked at the man and said, you were born in utter sin. And you would teach us? And they cast him out, the text says. And whereas the Pharisees elevated external ceremonies and practices above inward devotion and religion of the heart... And whereas the Pharisees loved and relished the opportunity to persecute, to slander, to condemn, to speak out against those they considered outside of their circle, Jesus makes it clear, those who follow him must leave that type of life behind. Because following Christ, again, and possessing a Pharisaical spirit are not compatible And when someone does claim to be a Christian while holding on to or being overtaken by a Pharisee spirit, your witness is ruined and your faith is most likely counterfeit. As Jesus said, the skins burst, the wine is spilled out, and the skins are destroyed. The whole thing is wrecked. Both wine and skins. The whole thing is ruined. Instead, new wine, said Jesus, is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Following Christ is not simply about following a set of rituals. Following Christ is not simply about searching for those who make mistakes and then condemning them for it. It's not about identifying and casting out everyone who has disagreements with you when it comes to extra-biblical issues. No, following Christ is about a heart filled with devotion to and love for the Lord. A a heart that is filled with a desire to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your soul, and all your mind. And also to love your neighbor as yourself. This new wine of rescue and salvation in Christ for all who believe, even tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and drug addicts and all the rest is incompatible with this Pharisaic system of refusing to show compassion and mercy. It's incompatible with setting oneself up against the world that we live in. Of all people in this world, the ones who should be most for the world is us who love Jesus. And when I say that, I don't mean we imitate the world, but we are the ones who are seeking its best all the time. We want people to hear about the freedom and liberty that is available to them in Jesus. We want them to know the freedom of obedience to the Lord, our God. We are for the world, and that's why we go out into it, carrying the gospel to it. To stand back and simply say, this world stinks, I want nothing to do with it, look at those hypocrites, and look at those idiots, and look at those morons, and look at that. Do you see all these people setting themselves up against us over here, and these people setting themselves up against us over here? You know what? I'm just going to stand here and judge them. That's the Pharisee spirit, man. We are called to compassionately and truthfully engage the world with the saving gospel of our Lord Jesus 
Christ. There should be no one who is more for this world than you. Jesus didn't come to simply reform synagogues, to reform the rabbinical system. Jesus came and he renounced that whole thing completely as antagonistic and irreconcilable with the way of the gospel. The gospel of forgiveness cannot live alongside of external rituals performed without any heart devotion. The way of Jesus calls for the heart, not only the externals. The way of Jesus, as we learned last week, calls for mercy and not just sacrifice. The Pharisee spirit was alive and well during the times of Jesus among the Pharisees, but sadly, in many ways, it's still alive and well among self-professing Christians today. I had an article forwarded to me by one of you yesterday, speaking to what pastors and shepherds of churches all across North America have witnessed in churches the Lord has called them to lead. And a few things seem consistent when I was reading this article. First, that this COVID season has produced and or revealed in so many of us a Pharisee's heart. As we've come to judge and to exclude, and to slander, and to gossip about, and to blow up in anger at those who see things differently than we do. Party spirit has formed in so many places where those of like mind all stick together and talk nice and loud about their views in insulting, angry, unmerciful, and uncharitable ways so that everyone who doesn't agree hears it. The standard by which we think of a person as in or out or cowardly or courageous or obedient or disobedient or worthy of our attention has been used in much the same way as the Pharisees in in the days of Jesus. And the line that hit me most in the article, the line that has been working its way through my mind for the last 24 hours and I responded to the person with this quote is this. What many pastors are finding is that their congregants have more allegiance to their personal preferences and political tribes than they do their communities of faith. Because much of the congregation is discipled daily by political pundits who could care less about who couldn't care less about gospel unity. Ouch. This is an almost perfect definition of the Pharisee spirit. Personal preferences, political tribes are more important than your community of faith. Boundaries are drawn. And everybody, everybody's just got to make it clear, right? This is what I think. Have you noticed that? Like, why can't we just be quiet? Why do we always, like it's just, it's, we just got to get our view out there and everybody's got to hear it. Just be quiet and love your neighbor. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't try to mix new wine and old wineskins because they don't mix. So where are you? Where are you? Have you been possessed or have you given yourself up to this Pharisee spirit, crafting externals, judging others who don't measure up to you? to your self-defined preferences? Do you care more about your preferences, opinions, and conclusions than the unity of the body? Over this last year, I know that it sounds like I have been harping on this issue over and over and over and over and over again. But this, like I've said, 
numerous times, is the great witness that we have to the world. This is where the enemy is trying to get us. This is how the enemy will ruin our witness to those that we are seeking to be for in this world. And so we will keep harping this issue of unity and love because Jesus made it clear, right? The world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And John in 1 John 4 makes it clear that the, the, the greatest witness, the, the place where people can see God most in this world is in your uh, lives as Christians, uh, as communities of faith that love one another. Don't let anything get in the way of that. It's time to repent. Otherwise, your wineskin will burst. And both the wine will flow out and your wineskin will be ruined. It's time for each and every one of us to commit to loving the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, and to loving those in your community of faith and loving your neighbors out in the world as yourself. Anything less is simply unacceptable. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for your rebuke. We thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth in your word. We thank you and praise you that on this day, John's disciples came to you asking that question and you gave them the answer that you did. We thank you that Matthew wrote that in the gospel so that we here on this morning can sit and, and talk about this and be challenged by it, and hopefully that your Holy Spirit would use this time that we've spent together in your presence to change us. I pray that Winona Gospel Church becomes the single most unified place on the planet. And that because of that unity, it just like spirit, we spiritually blow up, not really blow up, but spiritually blow up in the sense that people just want to come and they want to know what's going on and they, and they see Jesus here and they see you here and people get saved in droves because of our unity. Lord, I pray that you would help us to fight tooth and nail, not fight bitterly to, about our opinions, but fight bitterly for unity. And we praise you and we love you and we know that we can't do this on our own. We are too weak and too frail and uh, to fight for these things on our own. We can only do it by the power of your Spirit living in us. And so we pray that your Spirit would be just changing us right now. And we pray all of this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior who called us all out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen.